Peace to you. Welcome back to The Naked Truth, and thank you for joining me. It's a weekday, so we're going to pick up where we left off in the book of the Old Testament, uh, book of 2 Kings. We made it to chapter 18. If you want to read along with me, let's begin with verse 1. Now, it came to pass in the third year of Hosea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began the reign. So, again, we're talking about the different kingdoms, the 12 tribes, as they're called, divided into two kingdoms, the kingdom of Israel, the kingdom of Judah. We're talking about the kingdom of Judah at this point. And who's leading it now? Verse 2, he was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abby, the daughter of Zechariah. So the next king of Judah has been placed, uh, you know, on the throne. And um, he's the son of Ahaz, uh, and his name is Hosea. Um, I'm sorry, he's the son, the third year of Hosea, the son of Elah, the king of Israel. So that's letting us know who's uh, ruling the, over the kingdom of Israel. Meantime, the kingdom of Judah has a new king, um, Hezekiah, and how long he reigned, almost 30 years, three decades, and who his mother's name was. Um, it's unusual that they're mentioning the mothers, but it seems sometimes they do. Um, but they don't mention them as far as the lineages and begats very often, but occasionally. Verse 3, And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. So like we read previously, the kings of Judah are credited with being more righteous in the eyes of the narrator and the judgment of the narrator as we go than, generally speaking, the kings of Israel were. Um, and this one, Hezekiah, is one more that's considered... A righteous ruler. Verse 4, he removed the high places and broke the sacred pillars, cut down the wooden images, and broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the children of Israel burned incense to it and called it Nehushtan. So um, there's a lot being said in that verse there. First about the sacred pillars and the wooden images. We read how that keeps happening. It seems that even though they keep getting torn down, broken down, the sort of totem poles and phallic symbols that people would use to, uh, in their religious rites, that's what they would do for their ceremonies. For some reason, building objects that resemble big, tall, thick, hard penises was something that people worshipped. It's um, a sure a sign of the patriarchy that exists throughout the Bible. Um especially in the way they worship and considered it part of, of their religious ceremonies. And uh, it's not something that's just limited to the Bible. Basically, that's what the Washington Monument and other monuments like it are. They're phallic symbols. They're exalting the penis for some crazy reason. People, uh, the same people that look down on the LGBT community, um, do these phallic symbols they love big hard penises to worship them it seems crazy but it's nothing new it's what they do and they keep tearing them down and breaking them down when they have um their it's i would say come to jesus moments but this is before jesus ministry but it was seen whenever they'd want to start behaving righteously again or turn to god again they tear down those things those wooden images and those pillars and all of that and sort of have a fresh start again. Um, but then when you read, uh, we read on and somehow, once again, they've been re-erected. Um, no 
pun intended. I guess that's just a good pun. But they'd re-erect the phallic symbols and people would be worshipping them again. So as if that's not bad enough, the other thing that people were worshipping was a graven image. And it was made by the person who gave them the orders not to make any graven images, at least according to the narrative. It's Moses, the same Ten Commandments, Moses, who told the people that thou shalt not make any graven images, meaning you shouldn't cast any sort of statues or images, anything to represent something on high uh, in the divine realm, God. You're not supposed to do that. And yet we saw where the same person, Moses, was then told by the same person who gave him the order, presumably God. Um, here it's um, the Lord, all caps, is referring to an entity, a being, a person, a name, Jehovah. Um, that's how I'm pronouncing it. Pronounce it however you like. It's how it spells in English. That's how it looks like it's pronounced in English. Uh, but however you pronounce it, that's the entity that they were worshiping at that time and who told them, according to the narrative, not to do that. And yet we read where that same entity, at least according to the narrative, told Moses to do that, to make a graven image of a snake of all things, a serpent wrapped around a pole, and that people were to look to that for help. And uh, as crazy as it sounds in the, in the narrative, people looked to that snake on a pole, a bronze snake wrapped around a pole, the same imagery used in modern times, as crazy as it seems, with the medical industry. Look on any ambulance and you'll see, and lots of hospitals, you'll see, uh, urgent care facilities, you'll see there's a pole with a snake wrapped around it. And you might wonder, well, well, that seems crazy. Why in the world would that be? This is what it's rooted in. It's rooted in people getting healing from seeking that snake wrapped around the pole. And all of that contradicts what they were told about graven images. And yet, it's how it right. It reads that that's what they did. They made that bronze snake wrapped around the pole. And when people would get bitten by a snake, they'd look to that bronze snake on the pole and be healed, according to the narrative. So, um, as always, believe what you want to believe, but it is how it reads, so that's why we're reading it. Uh, they even gave it a name, Nehushtan, and that translates to the bronze thing, or bronze thing. Um, so, that's what the people were also worshipping. And who would blame them if they were praying for help from God uh, and not getting it, uh, but able to reach out and touch or even just look to the snake on a pole, something they can actually see and get relief through it, why wouldn't they worship it? Why wouldn't they think that that's God in their presence, God, uh, Emmanuel, God with them, with us, um, saving them from the snake bites and the suffering they were going through? So it's definitely contradictory, no matter what someone in a pulpit may tell you. It's a contradiction to say don't have any graven images and then turn around and tell Moses to make a graven image and have people look to that for help and then have it actually work. How else, why wouldn't people be confused by that? Verse five, he trusted in the Lord God of Israel so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor who were before him. So the narrator is letting us know that Hezekiah was considered righteous in the fact that um, he um, broke down those pillars and uh, even broke up this bronze snake and sort of turned people back to the Lord in that way um, and was considered more righteous than the kings before him and after him, since him. Verse 6, for he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him. 
but kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded Moses. So again, um, Hezekiah is being considered righteous for keeping those commandments that Moses had uh, shared with the people. Yet, like I just said, Moses himself uh, was told to contradict some of those same commandments. So either those commandments were actually from Moses and from the Lord, or they weren't. And I think the, the answer is probably in the middle. The Ten Commandments were given to Moses, uh, if you know, if we're going to believe this, the narrative. But those other dogmatic ordinances and statutes were not. Uh, otherwise, why would God contradict God? Why would God say, don't make a graven image and then tell Moses to make a graven image and have people rescued through it? So it seems to me the Ten Commandments were the commandments given to Moses uh, from God, if we're going to believe it's God. Jesus even affirms the Ten Commandments in his ministry. But all those other things about the graven images, about marriage, about sex, about uh, your period, menstrual periods, about all of that stuff is religion. It seems to me that's the only way to reconcile the two things to be uh, consistent, that religion is what says part of it and righteousness says another. And as a Christian, I, like I keep saying, it's for us, I believe, to lean on what Jesus says and have that as our North Star, so to speak. Verse 7, the Lord was with him. He prospered wherever he went, and he rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. So we've already read previous in the previous few chapters where the king of Assyria, a historical kingdom, um, conquered, has begun to conquer the kingdoms, uh, I'm sorry, the tribes, the kingdoms of Israel and Judah has begun taking territory from them and even carrying away captive some of the people who lived there and replacing them in their own houses with people from other nations that have been conquered and carried away captive by the same Assyrian forces. So that's who is being referred to when we're talking about the king of Assyria. Um, but Hezekiah apparently is not willing to go along to get along anymore. He's not willing to follow the king of Assyria. So what happens? Verse 8, he subdued the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory from Watchtower to fortified Syria, um, city. Excuse me. So um, the narrator here of the book of 2 Kings is letting us know some of the exploits of what Hezekiah was able to do while he was king, including conquering some of the Philistines and taking over some of their territory. Uh, the Philistines were the same people that Goliath, the giant, is uh, related to, and Gaza is the same Gaza in modern times, the Gaza Strip, where people are still fighting over uh, its territory. Uh, verse 9, now it came to pass in the fourth year of King Hezekiah, which was the seventh year of Hosea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up against Samaria and besieged it. So again, the king of Israel is mentioned uh, so that we can sort of keep track, if you want to, of who's reigning in Israel and who's reigning in Judah and how their uh, reigns overlap. So uh, while one king of Israel is being mentioned, Hezekiah's um, kingdom is also being uh, sort of chronicled. And also the king of Assyria by name is being mentioned here, Shalmaneser. So I don't know if outside of the Bible, it's the same name given to a king in Assyria um, in history or not. 
sure it'd be easy to research that if you're interested in finding it out. But the conquest is um, was, uh, I think, noteworthy here that the Syrians are still going up against the kingdom of, kingdoms of Israel. That's what Samaria is. It's the capital city, so to speak, of the kingdom of Israel and attacking it. Verse 10, and at the end of three years, they took it. In the sixth year of Hezekiah, that is the ninth year of Hosea, king of Israel, Samaria was taken. So again, so that you can see how the kings correspond, the king of Israel, kingdom of Israel is under attack by the Assyrian army and now being defeated by it. And the city of Samaria, their capital city, is being conquered and taken by the uh, king of Assyria while Hezekiah, the king of Judah, is on the throne. Verse 11, then the king of Assyria carried away, carried Israel away captive to Assyria and put them in Hala and by the Habor, the river of Gozan and the cities of the Medes. So um, this sounds familiar. I'm just going to check and make sure that we didn't already read this. But it's letting us know that um, where the Israelites, the ones who lived in the kingdom of Israel, were being carried away captive to as Assyria attacked and conquered them and took them to other places. Okay, I had to just check to make sure. And I remember we hadn't covered Nehushtan in the previous reading, so we know that this is a separate event from what we read previously. Sorry, just had to check. Didn't want to be reading the same thing to you twice and confusing you or myself. So verse 11, then the king of Assyria carried away Israel captive to Assyria. So we read that part. Verse 12, because they did not obey the voice of the Lord their God, but transgressed his covenant and all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. And they would, would neither hear nor do them. So uh, the narrator here is letting us know that the people were basically stubborn and hard-headed, that they had the commandments that Moses gave um, them. They just weren't doing them. And because of that, that's what the narrator is saying uh, is the cause for them being conquered and captured and carried away because they weren't being faithful. Verse 13, and in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. So now we see the king of Assyria who is who's changed. Now it's someone named Sennacherib, um, and that's who's ruling over Assyria. Uh, while Hezekiah is still the king in Judah, um, and we saw this, the Israel king was already taken away. Uh, let's see what happens now. Verse 14, then Hezekiah king of Judah sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish saying, I've done wrong. Turn away from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will pay. And the king of Assyria assessed Hezekiah king of Judah 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. So I don't remember how quite how much a talent weighs. Uh, I remember it's something like a hundred and something pounds. Not real sure. So that also, if you want to check and see, you can get a better idea of how much it weighs and an idea of how much it would be worth in modern times. But I think the point of it is that uh, he was able to get them to uh, acquiesce to his demands and pay him rather than be under attack by the king of Assyria. The king of Judah just decided to pay him, just give him what it is he wants, so he'll go away. And that's what he did. He gave him silver and um, and 
that was enough to convince, I mean, lots and lots of silver and lots of gold also. And that was enough to get the Assyrian kingdom king and his warriors to turn back from attacking the kingdom of Judah. So it basically preserved them to live another day by paying off the bully. Verse 15, so Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house. So Hezekiah is doing whatever he can to save the kingdom by giving up all that he has as far as the gold and the silver goes and giving it to the Assyrian king to um, protect the kingdom from attack by them. There's no mention of them um, seeking the Lord, uh, whatever Lord you want to call, name you want to give the Lord uh, for help um, at this point. Um, but maybe it's mentioned in like the books of Chronicles somewhere. But at this point in this book, it's not mentioned. But what is mentioned is that um, they paid off the, the invading armies to leave them alone. Verse 16, at that time, Hezekiah stripped the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the pillars which Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. So they're stripping the place bare of all the gold that, that say, Solomon uh, used to overlay the different pillars and different objects throughout the temple. They're taking all the gold off of that, just like if you would have um, a gold-plated piece of jewelry strip the gold off of it and leave whatever is there less precious metal or even wood or whatever else is underneath it for you to keep but the gold they gave up because that's what was considered valuable and that's what would turn the wrath of the king of assyria away from them verse 17 then the king of assyria sent to tartan the rabsaris and the rabshake from lachish with a great army against jerusalem to king hezekiah and they went up and came to Jerusalem. When they had come up, they went and stood by the aqueduct from the upper pool, which was on the highway to the fuller's field. So the Assyrian king had sent basically generals or some uh, soldiers to maybe even just delegates, but not seeking peace, but basically letting them know what's up, that they're in charge and that they can take them if they want to. That's who these different, um, uh, the Rabsaris translates to chief officer, the Tartan translates to the commander in chief. And um, let me see, there was one more, the Rabsheikh, that is chief of staff or governor. So it's political officials that the Assyrians have sent to the king of Judah and the kingdom and standing up where the water is held. So basically that's the life of any area the clean drinking water. If you don't have that, you won't be able to sustain the city, the life that depends on it. We see that happening in America with the toxic drinking water from city to city to city, uh, flowing through toxic pipes to basically kill the citizenry and how slow it is getting that change. It's fast if it's in a wealthy area. Uh, their pipes and water are clean and safe immediately. Uh, but when it comes to people without money and means, it's taking a long, 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 long time, even having to deliver bottled water to people to have them to drink and use that uh, in the so-called wealthiest nation in the world. So it lets you know where the money is being spent is not on the people. It's being directed to the wealthiest people who don't even need it. 
It, it's really, really, and I said it again and again, a sick society that robs from the poor to feed the rich who are already fat full. It just makes no sense. But it also includes letting the poor be the ones to cheer it on. MAGA, for instance, dirt poor, but still cheering on the wealthy, the rich, who are stomping on them where they're putting their necks. It's sick, but it's it's the state of the world, the state of America. Verse 18, and when they had called to the king of Eliakim, and when they had called to the king, Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, Shebna the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came out to them. So now the Syrian delegates, polit politicians, uh, soldiers, have shown up to the kingdom of Judah. They're calling out to the king, basically. So rather than the king answering directly, some of his own delegates and soldiers are answering the call. Verse 19, And the Rabshake said to them, Say now to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, what confidence is this in which you trust? So now the Syrian soldiers are um, calling out to the uh, Judean forces, uh, the king of Judah's forces, um, and letting them, asking them, oh, what's up with this? Why are you resisting us? What ally do you think you have that you think you can challenge us and stand against us? Verse 30, you speak of having plans and power for war, but they are mere words. And in whom do you trust that you rebel against me? So um, the Assyrians are uh, talking big, letting the Judeans know, we don't know who it is who's puffed you up to make you think you can take us on, but uh, share it with us. Let us know who it is you think is on your side that you can stand against us and our forces. Verse 21, now look, you're trusting in the staff of this broken reed, Egypt, on which if a man leans, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. So the Assyrians are calling out to the Judean delegates, letting them know, oh, so you think that Egypt is going to help you? They're letting them know Egypt is not going to be any help to you. Egypt is barely hanging on itself. And if you try and lean on it, the stick, the stick, lean on it as a walking stick, your walking stick is going to break and you're going to be pierced with the, with the edge of that stick you were trusting in. The very stick you're hoping for help from is going to end up damaging you. And they're saying that's how Egypt is to anybody that trusts in it. Basically, not a, a reliable uh, partner in the war. Verse 22, but if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he who who's high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and said to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem. So um, the Assyrians know what's been going on in the land of Judah, that they've torn down those sacred pillars and those phallic symbols and all these different places, the high places where people go up to worship the Lord. But again, Lord in English is translated from many different names of entities in other languages, as we've read. So uh, by the Assyrian judgment, um, they think that they're tearing down the places of worship to Jehovah. But we know um, from our reading that that's not who the people were always worshiping. There were all sorts of other entities, the Baals, the Ashtaroths, the Asherahs, all sorts of different entities that people were worshiping at those high places 
not just one. But the Assyrians wouldn't know that. All they know is that basically the churches have been torn down, the temples, the mosques, the synagogues have been torn down. So how is it you're trusting in your Lord when you're tearing down the places of worship? Your king, Hezekiah, has torn down the places where you go to worship him. So how is it you're trusting in him is what the Assyrians are asking them. Wondering, well, who is it you're trusting in? You're trusting in Egypt. That's not going to help you. You're trusting in the Lord. You've torn down those churches, so that's not going to help you. So what is it you're trusting in that's going to give you the strength to stand against us is what the Assyrian delegation is asking them. Verse 23, now, therefore, I urge you, give a pledge to my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give you 2,000 horses if you're able to, on your part to put riders on them. So now they're mocking them, basically, letting them know uh, you have no help. So your best bet is to go ahead and break us off what we're looking for, some money. Give us the gold, give us the silver, give us whatever it is we're demanding from you. And not only will we leave you alone and stop attacking you, we'll even give you some horses for your army if you can find men to get on the horses and fight for you. So they're letting them know, we know you're de uh, degraded. Your whole country, your uh, kingdom is degraded. It's no secret. We can see it. Verse 24. How then will you repel one captain of the least of my master's servants and put your trust in Egypt for chariots and horsemen? So they're saying, even if we give you the horses, you're not going to have any men to go on them. So how is it you're even trusting in Egypt to back you up in a war against us when you don't even have any men for the battle? much less anybody to drive those chariots with the horses we give you. Verse 25, have I now come up without the Lord against this place to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. So now the Assyrians are letting them know we're not doing this just on our own um, volition, just because we felt like conquering you. They're telling them it's the Lord who sent them against them. It's They're, they're telling them the Assyrians are telling the Judeans that the Lord's not on their side. The Lord is actually backing up the Assyrians and helping them in the war. And that that's who's been sent, who sent them against them. Basically saying, God isn't even on your side. It's God who sent us against you and sent us on the mission to destroy you. Verse 26, then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, Shebna, and Joah said to the Rabshake, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it, and do not speak to us in Hebrew in the hearing of the people who are on the wall. So now, just like in modern times, religion and politics are more concerned with appearances than being righteous. That's the same thing happening there. The delegation from Judea is begging, basically, the Assyrians to only speak to them in Aramaic. That's the same language, by the way, that Jesus spoke uh, in the time of Jesus' ministry, Aramaic, not Hebrew. Aramaic was the language being spoke because presumably that's the conquering uh, language of the conquering uh, people. And so whatever language they speak is the language that's going to be spoken and taught to the uh, people they've conquered. In the same way uh, that if America conquered someplace uh, or invades someplace, they're not going to be teaching the people there that they've conquered and are um, ruling over the language that they know. They're going to teach them English so that they'll learn to respond to the commands of the English-speaking soldiers that are ruling over them. So um, they, what they're doing is speaking to them in Aramaic, 
letting them know we have the power over you and we know your people in the land hear and know what we're saying. Um, if we speak to them in Hebrew, they'll know what we're saying. If we speak to them in Aramaic, only the elites are going to understand what we're saying. But the message isn't just for the elites. The Assyrians are giving the message to the elites and to the poor, to the common people, to let them know we're what's up. We're the ones who have the might. We're the ones with the power. So listen to what we're saying because your own kingdom won't be able to save you. Your own God has turned on you. And you have no way to fight us in the war. You don't even have any men to arm the chariots and horses to fight against us. So your best bet would be to go ahead, make peace with us, make a treaty with us, and uh, we'll leave you alone. And so the religious leaders, the I'm sorry, the Judean leaders are basically begging them, don't keep speaking in a language that the common people can understand. Just go ahead and speak to us elites and work with us. We'll, we'll go ahead and work things out one-on-one -on -one with you without the common people knowing what's going on. Let's keep them in the dark, which is what happens in modern times. The people in power make deals in the dark and keep the public in the dark so that only those who have access to what's actually happening can actually do anything about it. And everyone else gets stays divided against each other with the nonsense culture war BS, uh, thinking trans people are the biggest threat to children, even though we see again and again, it's not trans people who are caught molesting children by generation after generation. It's the regular cis straight male society that's doing that. And yet who gets demonized? Trans people. Uh, same thing goes with black people. It's not black people who've been starting wars for centuries and centuries and centuries around the world. World War One, World War Two, the Holocaust, uh, the Iraq War, all of those different wars. And even beyond those, aren't black people starting those? And yet it's black people who are targeted again and again and again as the major threat. And white supremacy completely overlooked again and again and again, even though it fuels things like January 6th, uh, slavery in America, the atrocities done to the Native Americans, things done to Asian Americans when they were here and put in the camps, all sorts of different evils, not attributed to the people who were actually behind them, but instead, a smoke screen put up to say, look over there at those other people, the minorities, the marginalized people who actually don't have very much power at all. Um, and the energy is directed at them instead of where it really needs to be directed at the elites to change anything at all uh, for the good. So anyway, this is where we're at. Verse 27, but the Rabshake said to them, has my master sent me to your master and to you? To speak these words and not to the men who sit on the wall, who eat and drink their own waste with you. So now the Assyrians are like, um, were we sent to just speak to you elites uh, who actually don't have much help either? The elites, they're just as um, helpless as the common people. And the Assyrians know that. So they're saying we weren't sent to speak to you elites who are hanging on by a thread. We were sent to speak to the common people because the common people will end up in the same boat as you, eating and drinking their own waste, eating their own poop in plain English, and drinking their own piss in plain English, just like you will if we attack you, if we push it to that point. Verse 28, then the Rabshake stood and called out with a loud voice in Hebrew and spoke, saying, hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. So now he's directly contradicting, directly not even contradicting, directly uh, 
He's directly, um, oh, what's the word? Not going by what it is the Judeans are asking him to. The Judean elites are asking, asking them, the Assyrian delegation, to only speak in Aramaic because they can understand it, but the common people can't. So then they can negotiate some sort of treaty or deal with them. But whereas if they speak in Hebrew, everyone in the area is going to know exactly what they're saying and know exactly what threat they're under. And they don't want the people knowing that because the people will probably rightly be terrified at the fact that there's an army right there at their doors ready to trample them into the dust. So now what does the invading army, the Assyrians do? Rather than do what the elites want them to do, continue speaking in Aramaic, where it'll be sort of a secret code just between them and keep the people in the dark. Instead, the Assyrians are calling out loud and clear in Hebrew, the language of the people, uh, so that they understand very clearly what's it, what's at hand and what they're facing and letting them know they better listen. Listen to the king of Assyria. And here's the message that they're shouting out to them. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he shall not be able to deliver you from his hand. So letting the people know, the Assyrians are letting the common people know that they can trust in the king if they want to. The king of Judea is not going to be able to save them and not going to be able to put up a fight against Assyria if Assyria decides to attack. Verse 30, nor let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, the Lord will surely deliver us. This city shall not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. So the Assyrians are letting the common people know, don't trust in the Lord either saying, don't trust in Hezekiah because he can't save you. And don't trust in the Lord either, thinking that the Lord's going to surely deliver you and save you from the king of Assyria. <clears throat> Excuse me. That's the message that the Assyrians are giving to all the people to hear in their own language. So there's no confusion. 31. Do not listen to Hezekiah, but thus says the king of Assyria, make peace with me by a present and come out to me. And every one of you eat from his own vine and everyone from his own fig tree, and every one of you drink the waters of his own cistern. So the Assyrians are letting them know, you have a chance to save yourselves if you come out to me with a, and make a treaty with me, if you offer me a gift, if you bring me what's valuable to you, your gold, your silver, and whatever else it is uh, valuable that the Assyrians want. That'd be your best bet, is what he's letting them know. Don't trust in your king, Hezekiah. He can't save you. Don't trust in the Lord. He won't save you. So your best bet is to go ahead and make peace with us before we attack you and make you uh, and take you down completely. Verse 32, until I come and take you away to a land like your own, like your own land, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive groves and honey that you may live and not die. But do not listen to Hezekiah, lest he persuade you, saying, the Lord will deliver us. So the Assyrian is letting them know, the Assyrian delegation is letting them know, this is your chance to save yourselves. Don't trust in your own government, uh, Hezekiah. He won't save you. Don't trust in the Lord. He won't save you. Your best bet is to go ahead and be our servants. Go ahead and follow us. Be subject to us. And live in your own place. We won't take you away captive. We won't treat you badly. We'll let you stay in your own house, eat your own food, drink your own water, and you won't be forced um, to eat poop and drink pee 
Instead, you'll be able to live comfortably until we go ahead and come and take you away. So it's a little bit better, I guess. They're letting them know you'll be able to keep living your life as you live it. And then we're going to take you away to where we want you to be and take you captive there. And in the mean, and that's what I was talking about before. When Once they're taken away, they're going to replace them. That's what their pattern is with people who they've uh, taken away, kidnapped, basically taken captive from other areas that they've conquered. That's the Assyrian way, it seems, to displace one person, one group and put them in, in place of another displaced group, basically to basically throw them into confusion so that they'll have to lean on the Assyrians for direction and survival. Um, verse 33, has any of the gods of the nations at all delivered its land from the hand of the king of Assyria? So now the Assyrian delegation is asking the people to consider if any other nation that the Assyrians have attacked have been able to be rescued from their grip. Verse 34, where, where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim and Hena and Eba? Indeed, they've delivered Samaria from, have, indeed, have they delivered Samaria from my hand? So now uh, the Samaria, the capital city of Israel, has been taken. And the Assyrians know it, and the Judeans know it. So now the Assyrians are letting them know where are all the gods that those people worship in those different areas, in those different Hamath, Arpad, Sepharvaim, Hena, Eba. They're saying they had gods too, and their gods didn't rescue them. And Samaria had gods too, and their god didn't rescue them either. Letting them know you can trust in those different gods if you want to. Uh, they didn't save them, and they're not going to save you. And they're saying, look to your own people, uh, well, your own closest people in Samaria. Uh, they had their gods they worshipped too, and they didn't help and save them either. Verse 35, who among all the gods of the lands have delivered their countries from my hand, that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem from my hand? So again, the Syrians are letting them know, look around you and see. Nobody's been able to stand against us with or without their gods. So who is it you think is going to rescue you and save you from us? Verse 36, but the people held their peace and answered him not a word, for the king's commandment was, do not answer them. So the people are being addressed directly by the Assyrian forces, but they're being faithful to the commandment of their own king, Hezekiah, to not respond in kind, to just quietly listen to the insults and threats, but don't respond, don't say anything. Verse 37, which actually is good advice sometimes. Sometimes it is best to not say anything at all, to just let people talk all their good stuff and not say anything at all. Um, so that's what the people are doing. Verse 37, then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, Shebna the scribe and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him, in the, word, and told him the words of the rapshake. So um, now the delegation, the Judean delegation has returned to Hezekiah, the king, and let him know um, it's bad news. The Assyrians mean business and they have their clothes torn like we read before. That's just a symbol of outrage or heartbreak or uh, uh, it's what you do when you're just completely downtrodden, when you are It'd be like pulling your hair out. You're at your wit's end. And that's where they're at. They've torn their clothes to make it clear to anyone who sees them that they're distraught. And that's what they've done. They've torn their clothes and returned back to King Hezekiah. 
and let him know the message that the Assyrians are given is not a message of peace, that they mean business. That's the last verse in this chapter. So that's where we're in this reading. As always, thank you for joining me for the Naked Truth. Hope it's a blessing for you. Hope to see you again next time. Love you. Peace be with you.